mental health is really difficult. You have to accept it, but then taking the step forward to do something about it is really a tough step to make. The Buddha path is never ending, and this applies to everything. If your body decays, you still have to move on, and this will affect other parts of your life, but you cannot stop living your life. Your relationships will change, everything will change, but you still have to keep on the path. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Tokushikai Insight Look podcast. Today we're speaking with Eduardo Brito from Braga, Portugal. Eduardo has been practicing Budo for nearly 20 years and holds the rank of Yondan in Kendo and Sandan in Naginata. In this wide-ranging conversation, Eduardo talks about getting into Naginata, helping to develop the community in Portugal, his battles with mental health, dealing with ego in the martial arts, and important lessons in life. Eduardo speaks with wisdom beyond his years, and his courage to talk about life challenges that we all deal with is admirable and so valuable during these tough times. His message of resilience and affirmation touched me deeply during this conversation and was just as impactful listening to it a second, third, and even fourth time while editing this episode. I hope everyone who listens to this considers his words deeply and takes something away for their own lives. So, without further ado, here's Eduardo Brito from Portugal. Hello, my name is Eduardo, Eduardo Brito. I'm from Portugal. I grew up in a small town in the north of Portugal called Barroselas. It's in Viana Castel, so it's the northernmost part of Portugal. Most people know me from Braga, which is where I've been living for the last 18 years. So I did my 35th birthday a week ago. <laughs> so I've been living oh, more happy time. Birthday. Oh, thank you. Thank you. So I've been living more than half my life here in Braga, and the rest was in Roselas. Braga, some people may not know, but many people know Porto. So Braga is a little more to the north than Porto, about 40, 50 kilometers, I guess. So it's not that far away. And it's very convenient for when we have sensei over to take them from the airport to, to Braga to have the seminars. I've been doing martial arts in one form or the other since about seven, eight years old. I wanted to do earlier because, yeah, I think like lots of people from my age group in general, they grew up seeing, yeah, like nowadays we have Netflix and all that. No, before that we had to see what was on TV. We could not choose. And we got to see lots of action flicks especially things like Bruce Lee. Bruce Lee was my favorite at the time, and he's still kick-ass. So yeah, it was a very big influence to me to start martial arts. I know this sounds kind of strange, but no, nowadays it sounds kind of strange, maybe. But yeah, it was a very big influence. So it took me about one, two years to convince my parents to actually do martial arts. Martial arts, this was about 30 years ago, right? Here in Portugal, nobody knew about martial arts in general. They only knew about the movies. And so it was really difficult. It's, they thought it was just eating each other, nothing more, just beating people up. So it was really difficult to convince. But then we started, I was able to start in a karate, judo, and the dojo also had another thing that they had created. So I started that. And I think like even nowadays in for adults, I started there because of there were no don't matter choices nearby. And that was the closest one. So it was the closest to the dojo, which is, I think, very important for any people when they start out, it's close. I, I stayed there for some years uh, until I was 14, 15, 
some things happened during those last years and that led me to stop practicing there at that dojo. Afterwards, I started doing kickboxing. I had to stop for a couple of months because I had some growth issues when I was 15, 16 or 14, 15, which was my knees would lock up and I couldn't move my legs. At this point in time, I was a teenager. I didn't have much initiative as most teenagers, I think. So I didn't actually have like, oh, I can't practice. What can I do? There was no alternative. Like I can't practice, I can't practice. I'll do, I'll just don't do anything. So yeah, it took me a while to get back into practice, uh, a while, six months, which is not that long. If we consider the Corona pandemic, <laughs> now it's like everything's related to Corona pandemic. So after that, I, I was doing kickboxing until I was about 21, kickboxing and Sanda. My dojo also went through a period where we did Daidojuku besides kickboxing. That was very interesting. And it was, I think, not, I'm going to talk today about Kendo and Naginata mostly, but that experience with kickboxing was really very informative. It made me the person I am today, kind of the person I am today, because the teacher there was a very strict, very, but also very nice and very kind person, very funny. And he was really good at teaching. He was also a very good fighter, no doubt about that, but he was really good at teaching and the way he taught and the way he was as a person influenced my life from thereafter. So, do you have any particular examples or memories of him either in the class teaching something or talking to the class in general about life or second dojo, that kind of stuff? Even in class, so he was a military man, a former commando. So he was a very tough guy, but also very funny. He had lots of stories about that time in the army or in the special forces, actually. So there were lots of stories about that that were inspirational. But it was the small things also that were kind of funny that he did. Like, okay, now we're going to be doing a circuit training. We're going to go from, from different stations, going around different stations, like the box, the heavy bag, the jump rope and whatever. Okay, so we're going to change. When I, when I give the signal, we're going to change. And that was a very small space that we had to pre for practice at that time. And there was also a gym. There was not your normal gym with uh, machines for weightlifting. You will go into the door and we were doing like our best, trying to nonstop. And then suddenly it starts talking. But he knew what he was doing. That's, <laughs> that's the, the funny thing. He knew what he was doing. He was like talking to people at the gym. So the time will go on and on and on. And what will be like supposedly two or three minutes will be like 10 minutes. But that was to make our minds sharper and tougher. So we couldn't stop until it was essentially yame. So, oh, so, so you guys were doing the circuit training while he goes to random people in the gym to... No, no he was chat. outside the door. But he, he was looking at us. So yeah. the thing was, he was at the door looking at us while we were practicing. And he, he knew that it was kind of, uh, it's not frustrating, but he knew that we were, that we knew that he was paying attention, mm -hmm. but he, he knew that we knew that we didn't know how, when it was going to stop. Mm -hmm. Okay. So he was paying attention, looking at us and then, oh, you're putting your hands down, put your hands up, keep striking, don't stop, but still talking with another person. It was a kind of way. That it, it, it was really funny. Now that we look back at it, at the time, it was just tiring. <laughs> it was like, oh my God, this is never going to stop. 
Like I got to listen to the hockey, uh, to the Eye of the Tiger and No Surrender by Rainbow. For I got to know those songs from back because those were the first two songs on the CD that he used to put on play while we were doing this. So it was, yeah, I know, it seems, I know that telling the story like this might seem like he was not paying attention to class, but he was really paying attention. He always knew, one thing is that he always knew the, the mistakes or the problem, the issues that each and every student of his had. So he knew like my, at that time, my guard was not the best. I used to put my hands down a little. And I used to get hit in the face a lot. So he knew this and he was always trying to think of new exercises to, to improve our skills or everything that we needed to do to be better. He was always trying to think of new exercises. And this is something that I always enjoyed and I, I still do. It's something that I brought over to Kendo and Naginata. Is that first is, yeah, not the, we'll, we'll, okay, we'll stop when it's Siami. Okay, okay, 10 more, 10 more. Okay, then after 10, 10 more, then 10, <laughs> 10. Okay, and this makes people putting in the effort. So this is kind of one of the things that cross over. The being, trying, being strict without being overbearing on people was also another thing that I tried to come, to try to come over to Kendo also. I think people need to have a certain amount of strictness, but they, they also need to be having some fun, okay? And sometimes it's difficult because training is very strict. And the last thing is to actually know, I don't have many students and in Portugal, we don't have many students in Kendo and Naginata in general, not just in my dojo, but in general, there are not that many students, but I know what most of them, like if they, if it's not the first class, I know exactly what their problems are, how to fix them. And I, I try to make. There's a general plan, but while they are training, the general practice, I'm always looking out for those mistakes. So I have in mind every single thing that I need to work on at the moment. And that's really important. I, there's lots of different ways to teach. Some dojos prefer to have a broad approach where the people try to come up to the level of the rest of the dojo. That's one approach. I have a more hands-on approach where I try to micromanage in a way what the students are doing. Even now that we are away from the dojo and we're only to, um, practicing by Zoom most of the time, but we also do outdoors and we also have our own physical space, our own dojo, but we have to have distance and no contact. But be it by video or be it uh, presential, live, I always try to see if they are doing the same mistakes as always and what, what different exercise they can try to approach to fix it. Because there's no point in beating a dead horse, right? You can't expect things to change by doing the same things over and over again. That It might work when people start doing Budo when they are five years old and they continue doing until they are 50, I don't know, for all your life, essentially. And then things get better, but we start very late uh, in Portugal. And I think we need to be a little smarter in terms of teaching, not just repetition, but actually making people understand what they need to, to fix. Mm, so you started martial arts pretty early at a young age, but then, but Kendo and Naginata was later. Can you yes. talk about how you get into those martial arts? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
yeah, I got sidetracked there. So after kickboxing, I did until 2021. I got very sick. I got burnout when I was 2021. It took me a while to understand what was happening with my mind and body. And I only started getting treatment for it when I was about 24. And things started going better, 20, yeah, maybe 23. I, it's, it's really difficult to talk about those years because my mind does not know the, the time. The time feels like it's all over the place. So that was a very big health issue that I had. Uh, Do you know I, why that illness came about? What were you uh, feeling? What were the symptoms? I was a student at the university. My university, our degree in computer science, well, actually it's called informatics engineering. It's a little different than your typical computer science, which is more theoretical. So it's known to be really hard. And I am sometimes a perfectionist. I really wanted to have the best grades all the time. So I put in lots and lots of effort. I was still practicing for until I got sick. I was practicing five times a week, be it at the gym or being kickboxing. I was practicing a lot still. So I had to handle the practice and the studying, but it was really difficult. And there came a time where you don't have enough time to sleep. You should always have time to sleep. Resting is really important. That's what I, when I see students starting to have the same issues that I had or starting to have the same symptoms like lack of sleep, feeling tired, nausea, not not able to practice because or starting present and starting to feel dizzy and they, they say, oh, I've been feeling sick all week. I don't know what's happening. When I see people having symptoms that are closely related to anxiety or ah, I cannot go out because I feel so stressed, my heart starts beating or things like that. I always talk to them. One thing that I try to be open is about my mental health because I think not enough people talk about mental health issues in Budo. And there's a mentality that we can always push further and we we'll always become better and healthier by doing it. It's kind of true in a sense, but some things are just medical conditions. And of course, not sleeping made me get worse in terms of health, but there comes a time where you really need medication and you shouldn't be afraid to look for help, be it your friends, they, they can help you in psychological terms, medical professionals. It's really important. It's, it's not a weakness to be sick. Nobody thinks that you're weak because you have diabetes, heart condition. You just have a, a health problem. So you should seek help. It's nothing... I'm saying this because I thought I was indestructible and that I, didn't, I could do it by myself. I just had to man up, as people say, and that's completely stupid. Uh, so that manning up feeling, was that something that you put on yourself or did some sensei or parent or teacher externally made you feel like you can't ask for help? I think it's more cultural thing, right? I, we see this in several cultures. I won't, won't say in every, but I think that we see this in several cultures where men have to be men, right? Which is also a different. Some days ago, I was writing a blog post about this. I still haven't finished. But there's even studies about athletes, in you know, competition athletes. And there's always, there's, I don't want to be discriminatory, but the thing is, of course, there are different things about being a male or a female in our patriarchal society. And I think it's really bad that we have gender roles attached to our sex. 
And for a man to actually say that he's vulnerable and not strong and that he cannot do something by himself is really bad in most societies. So I don't think it was any single person that made me feel like that, but it was society as a general that made me feel like that. And by myself, I always thought that I should be able to be strong enough by myself. So connecting this to Budo is actually interesting because we, in Budo, we are not by ourselves. Budo is for society. We also have a dojo. We practice with a dojo. We might be doing, for people that are more focusing on Shi'ai, we might be doing Shi'ai by ourselves. But we are never by ourselves. When we go to the Shi'ai, we're taking the teaching of our sensei. We're taking the practice that we did with all our colleagues, essentially. So we're never alone when we're fighting. And uh, Budo is all about society and community. If you're practicing and you feel like you have any of these issues, talk to not only your friends outside the dojo, but your people at the dojo should be your friends and your family. It won't fix the physical things that you're feeling. I mean, if you're having insomnia, like sleeping three hours a day for the last two weeks or months, like I was, that won't fix it. But maybe they can give you some insight to what's happening and maybe you can start to feel that you're not alone. This is not a question of being strong or not. This is a sickness. You have to treat as such. So always trust in your dojo, not only for the technical teachings, but as a friend and as family. So mm. that's really important in the dojo. Yeah, and I think that, as you mentioned, it's a societal thing. So everyone just feels that pressure if, if it's not spoken out loud. And you being the leader of your dojo and being able to model the behavior that you would like to see and to be able to speak about it is very helpful for a lot of people to see that it's safe to come out and say that they're weak or that they're feeling bad. So how did, how did you get that courage yourself to come out and talk about your mental illness? Where did you find the help that you needed to at least manage it? Well, it, 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 so I started treatment essentially because... I literally thought I was going to die, and that could have happened, actually. So there was one day I had been postponing it for quite a while to try to get treatment, but one day I had so many intense panic attacks that I thought, okay, if I don't do anything about this, I will surely die. And that's kind of the motivation. I, I, it was something from myself. I also had, at the time, I also had some friends that helped me understand that I needed help. But it's, it's one of the things, those things that you cannot do it. It's, it's like at the dojo, right? When you're at the dojo and your sensei tells you that, especially when you're a beginner, you need to be more straight. Your kamai should be center. And you're like, but my kamai is at the center. <laughs> I, I don't understand it. Or you can even understand it by your mind. Like, okay, I accept that I'm not doing it okay. But the process of understanding it with your mind and actually doing something about it or understanding how to do it with your body, it takes some time. And this is the kind of thing like mental health is really difficult. You have to accept it, but then actually taking the step forward to, uh, to do something about it is really a tough step to make. And uh, it, it was difficult, but it was with the help of friends. At that time, I was so when I was so that was for three years that I was dealing with this without almost any like contact with other people. 
But at the time, I also tried to restart martial arts because another thing that happened, so I'm very passionate about martial arts. But when this started, I, I felt nothing. So I had no feelings about anything. Not about practicing martial arts, not, not about my degree. Everything was, there was no passion. There was no, no, no feeling of want or not wanting, nothing. So I think that sometimes people, of course, there are normal situations where people feel the plateau. They cannot go up. They are stuck on something. But you have to be careful. There's the feeling of being stuck on something. There's the feeling of not wanting anything with your life. <laughs> they are different things. Okay. So uh, you have to be careful and really try to understand if you're not going down a bad path in your life. During that time, I tried to restart martial arts because I thought it was going to help me. And eventually it did. I tried some other martial arts. And at the time, it was a coincidence that I already had started medication and had started treatment. At first, it was not that good, and it started to get better. At about the same time, there was postings on a blog on the internet. <laughs> so I was looking for... So this was part of my... I want to get back to martial arts. And I, I was thinking, okay, I want to do kickboxing. At the time, I was not finding any kickboxing gym. That There were some, but I wasn't finding any that talked to me in a personal level like the one I was before. And suddenly I'm looking for martial arts and I see Kendo. And I didn't mention it, but along the years, I, I used to buy magazines, like things that, you know, those paper things that people nowadays don't buy. So I, during lots of years, I started reading French magazines when I was like six or seven years old. I'm Portuguese, so we only are... We have two languages in Portugal, which is Portuguese. And then there's a very small minor language that's called Mirandês. But at school, we learn French and English. Some of us, we can choose other languages. I started learning French much later in life, but I started reading French magazines <laughs> way sooner. That's really weird. But yeah, so there was lots of magazines at the time. And I had seen Kendall. So, of course, when I was six, seven years old, the internet was not a thing, literally. So Tim Berners-Lee had said it was at 1994 that the internet came to be kind of how it is like now. So, yeah, that was before that. I'm getting old. So there was no internet like today. It's only magazines. And I was like, oh, this will be nice. But most of the time, weapon-based martial arts didn't really interest me for some reason. Although I watched Wuxia movies. I was like, eh, I, I don't know. And then as long as I got older, like samurai things and starting to watch anime, and uh, I was a little, I, I, I still am a kind of otaku. So it was like, oh, ah, this looks cool. And then I contacted the National Association a couple of times. At that time, there was no doge besides Lisbon at the beginning. Then they started opening up other dojo, but there was no dojo in Braga or in Viana Castel. But there was a blog. At one point in time, there was a blog saying that they wanted to bring Kendo to Braga. And I was like, oh, I can join this. I can join this initiative. I've been doing martial arts. I have some experience in having seminars and going to class at other places. When I did martial arts, when I was younger, I, I traveled a lot. Like I was from a small town. 
So if I wanted to go to uh, competitions, my mother will take me and she had to wait for the whole competition there. So I had to go like, normally I had to go far away for for any competition. So I was kind of used to going around to go to competitions, seminars, shimpan practice. I did all those things when I was uh, judoka. So yeah. So I was like, yeah, if I have to travel to do kendo, that will be okay. So I got in contact with the people from the blog. I started talking with them. And then I went to with, watch some of national team practices. And it was so intense. Like up until that point, I was thinking, yeah, kendo, kendo should be cool. Like I've seen videos. At that time, there were already videos, <laughs> 2010. So it was like, oh, yeah, this looks cool. But you really, I think it's like a disservice to Kendo in a way, because we try to promote it by videos, but until you get to the dojo and you, you listen to that sound and that feeling of being inside that space, which we won't be having for some months more, I guess, but it's really different. The it's, it's atmosphere is different. You get the, the heat of the, the people moving around, the sound, everything. If you already have done martial arts, especially, you see that it's, it's completely different. Even if you have like a, a kickboxing gym with 30 people eating heavy bags, it's not the same. It's completely different. Even like 10 people doing kirikayashi, it feels like a whole different experience. And that really, that was a point that really got me into kendo. Even before starting it, it was like, oh, this is just so intense. Everything's like, everyone's really serious doing it, like 100% of their effort, doing all the practice. And it looks cool also, because that's like the motivation for people for starting else is like, why am I going to do this? Because it looks cool. And it looked and sounded awesome. And I got really even more interested in starting. And then eventually, after talking with people from the near, nearest dojo, which was in Porto, they started bringing Kendo to the dojo, to Braga, to a place at the university where we rented. So the first class that we had was like a special beginner's class showing off Kendo that was in 15th May, 2010. Then every week, a different teacher will come or a group of people to show us Kendo and teach until a point in time where we had a fixed person that said, okay, now it's difficult for people always to be changing teachers, so I'm going to be the responsible. And that person taught us Kendo from 2010 to 2013 until he quit Kendo. So even teachers quit Kendo sometimes. Then from 2013 to 2015, we had another person from Porto and then from 2015 onward, there was a time that we were both teaching at the same time, different schedules, of course. But then from 2015 up until now, I've been doing the candle practice. Before that, we, we also have Naginata. Naginata got introduced to us by the, our first candle teacher because he was a student of Charlotte Manaslan Sensei, my sensei. And he, at the end of a practice, was like, oh, I really miss doing Naginata. And we had like some very big sticks in the place where we practice Kendo. So he was like, oh, let me show you a little about Naginata. And as I said before, I really didn't care much about weapon martial arts before I started doing Kendo. 
So although I read a lot about martial arts, I really didn't know even what was Naginata. So I was like, oh, I'm interested in uh, seeing that. And he showed me, I was like, oh, yeah, that's, that could be cool also. So we got in touch with Charlotte, which was no longer living in Portugal. So if you ever do a podcast on uh, with Charlotte Sensei, you'll see how the kind of life she has had for the last years, driving around. She's a very interesting person. And so we got, we got in contact with her when she came to Portugal next time. We had a seminar and we started practicing. And it was my senpai had some experience. He practiced some years with her, one or two years, I believe. So that was a good start because we had someone with the Kion and some bases, essentially. So some Kion. And that was okay. But then he also quit Naginata. He quit Naginata before he quit Kendo. So I was left in a position to start teaching Naginata when I was essentially fourth Q. And I was fourth Q because I had gone to a seminar and the International Naginata Federation seminar, I think it was in Sweden in 2012. And I did the grading and yeah, and it was during the seminar that he quit Naginata. He said, I'm not going to teach Naginata anymore. I was like, okay. And then... <laughs> I started Naginata when I was fourth Q. And at that time, Charlotte was already not again in Portugal, but now she was living in the UK. So this actually leads to a certain thing that's kind of interesting, I guess, is that this was 2012. I, I, I had bought a, a camcorder. So essentially, we did Kion practice. We did, we did like normal practice, but yeah, Shikakiyoji, which is a kind of kata that we do in Naginata. And we were doing those mostly Kion practice, not some Bogu, but not that much from what I remember. And we recorded it. And so we practiced it, we recorded, sent it to our sensei. She would see the recording, say, oh, we have to fix this, fix that, fix that, fix that, fix, 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 fix. And nothing was good. <laughs> everything was bad. Everything needed fixing. And then we got into the dojo again with the feedback written on a paper. And then we would practice again. And then we would be going back and forward, back and forward. But yeah, this was essentially almost from the beginning. This was actually even before the seminar that now that I'm thinking of. So we started 11th October 2011, Naginata. And yeah, almost since the beginning, because she went back to the UK, I think it was three months after we started. So we were recording and sending to her. And so this is kind of what we're doing at the moment during this pandemic, but without a real-time feedback. So it was a little more difficult. And I did this for years. Of course, it was a different time, so we could travel. I traveled to lots and lots of seminars for Kendo, for, I also did Yaido and Jodo at the time. So I also traveled for Yaido, Jodo, Kendo, Naginata, lots of seminars, lots of going abroad to actually learn. I think that something that some people, one of my most important persons in Kendo is Chris Sensei, Chris Ma Sensei from Belgium, what I consider my teacher. I'm not with him that much, not, not now especially. But I go to him a lot whenever I need to practice and learn more things and bring back stuff to learn. So traveling was always a part of my journey. But I, what's funny is that 
is is now Nanadan, but I have heard people saying things like practice with high grades in general, and he told me the, also this. It's like, why should I go to a seminar? I already have a Nanadan here or a sixth dan, so why should I go to a seminar? And that's really a, not the best thing. Like even for a beginner you always have benefits of going to a seminar. Not only technical benefits, but getting to know other people, being part of the community, and just being part of a thing, a thing that's a whole lot bigger than what you are. So sometimes people start having the big fish in a little pond, especially in the smaller com Buddha communities. And then you go outside, even if you just go to another dojo, you just need to go outside and see that the, wo the world is a much larger place than what you think it is. And that's really good for your ego. <laughs> I, I never thought that I was a good Budoka in my life. Never. Because I always saw people that were way stronger or better than me at everything, sometimes. Uh, sometimes at certain points. So you look at people and say, I want to be like that. I want to improve. I want to take that from that person and do it like he does because he's really good at doing it. So it's really good. That's also part of the character building in Budo, right? So you you can't just do it and say, ah, I'm the best. No, it's, yeah, that doesn't happen. You, you see other people. If you only read about Budo or if you only practice at your own dojo, it's really easy to fall down into that mentality. So when you go into other places and you meet other people and then you're like, before the seminar, I was once at the, before a seminar in the UK for Naginata. I was talking with two people that were going to the seminar and it was like, oh yeah, I've been doing Naginata, not for that long. And people, oh yeah, also I've been doing for that long and whatever. And then I was 50Q at that time for this specific conversation. And then I got into the dojo like the next day and uh, one of the the girls was a uh, sandan <laughs> and it was like yeah and she was a really good sandan she was like she was part of a very strong team in japan she was a japanese descendant and she was living in the uk and she was a really strong sandan it was like oh yeah okay so you've been doing for a little longer than me i guess so you you cannot really assume anything when you talk to someone especially very good practitioners in general are very humble they don't like tooting their own horn and that's a good thing i guess i think so but sometimes you really need to talk about your experience to make people understand that especially if you're teaching like sometimes if you're too soft of a person like i sometimes tend to be people think oh it's just eduardo teaching it's just it's just eduardo and i'm not that good as i told you before but there's still some experience to what I say. And sometimes you really have to make people understand that you're not just saying something because you're saying it. You're saying something because you have some experience in doing it. Although you are kind of junior. In my, I, I'm just Sandan in Naginat and uh, Yondan in Kennel, so not that much. But there's a background to it. And especially if you're going and focusing on someone, like I was talking before, like giving a specific hints or tips to a certain person. And people are sometimes, especially at the beginning, well, really at the beginning, it doesn't make that much difference. But at that intermediate point where people start wearing bogu 
and they start to think that they know a little more and you start giving tips to them and they're like oh sometimes you, you can tell that people are like and you talk afterwards and because i want to know what they thought and it's like oh because you were telling me this but that person over there is doing different and it's like yeah because it's a different issue <laughs> your own problems are your own problems you can learn from everyone but sometimes if i'm asking you to do something more exaggerated that's because you're doing too little and I want you to do more. So if you try to exaggerate, you'll probably be at about the right place. The, the way that that person is approaching your pra the practice is different from your way because your way is different from her way. That's something that happens. But you really have to be flexible. You cannot, as a teacher in at a dojo, you, I think you should be quite open-minded. And you should not be to, it's only my way of doing it. No, you really have, should have references, especially, especially nowadays. People go around and they watch some very nice podcasts and some very nice videos. Like there's people doing videos all the time. Like we have uh, Annie Fisher, for instance, doing the Kendall show and lots of things there. I sometimes send it to my students and say, see, I'm not the only one <laughs> saying this because it's really nice to have some points, but people will see it either way and then they get confused. That's one of the dangers of video that people see, they get confused. And my sense is saying this, but he's saying that. And he's like, Achidan. so he should know better. And he knows better, of course, but each situation is a situation. When I was really a beginner, especially after I did Shodan, when I did Kendo Shodan, it was really funny in a bad way because I was watching like the Achidan Taikai, right? And you see like those people with the really strong Kamai and not moving. And I thought, oh, I should be like that. No, <laughs> of course not. Of course not. You, it's not something that you can pretend to do. It's something that it will come to you when the time comes. So you have to build it up. But you can just say, oh, I'm trying to imitate a Nazi dance because I saw a movie. No, or a video. No, 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 no. That, that, that doesn't work. You really need to go through the motion and go through the different stages of development. And I think sometimes our, we are not used to that. Yeah. And so you, you talked a lot here about having, making sure that your ego doesn't get too big, that you can't learn anymore or you don't listen to other people. And one of the issues you mentioned was being a big fish in a little pond. In your case, you technically are a big fish in a little pond because Portugal Naginata and Kendo is more recent and there aren't that many high ranks. How do you make sure that you don't get that? Because you're now teacher of your own dojo, even though you're Sandan in Naginata. How do you make sure that you can control your ego and you can always feel like you're learning? Well, I think there's two parts of controlling your ego. One part I'm not really good at, actually. So in the technical terms, it's really easy. My sensei is really good. <laughs> So it's really easy. My sense is really good. Like I, if I say I, every time she, she does something or we do on Saturdays, we do a Zoom Keiko for the Portuguese National Association. Uh, so Naginata started when uh, we restarted practice. Naginata has been in Portugal for, since Charlotte was here. But it was on and off because people quit and then there was no one to continue. And I've been the person that has been continuing for the longest which is a shame. I would like to have Senpai, but I'm the highest grade at the moment in Portugal. And so in that sense, 
my sensei being really good helps me to understand that I still have a lot to to improve. But I also like Nanette is really small, and I don't say this as a bad thing. I think sometimes people also say, like, oh, this Buddha is small, it's not good. No, being small sometimes is, is beneficial for for people and for the Buddha itself. We see when Buddha sometimes gets too big, especially when we see some countries, for instance, in Kendo, where people don't know each other or they heard of someone but they never saw that person, they never practiced with her or with him, whatever. Sometimes smaller makes the community stronger and makes people get, in, get better. Of course, more people, more practice with, this, with different people, more practice with different people, more study, more study, better dealing with different situations, which is really important in Budo also. But having a smaller community makes you understand, so the depth of, that you understand the naginat of each person is also different. This is for Charlotte's podcast, I guess. But Charlotte, for instance, she, she practiced a lot in the Netherlands with Rabun Sensei and with Mark Bergam, which she was a, a, a training partner of Mark Bergam. I'm sorry to Mark because I'm not saying his name properly. That's just very <laughs> difficult. When I started Naginat, I started traveling. One of the first people that I got to know was Mark. And Mark is a technical director for the ENF, European Naginat Federation. I got to know his, his students, the people from the Netherlands. I went to other seminars. So you, you go to seminars and you see lots of people that have that supposedly are at your level, but they are way better than you. And then you, you see lots of people and you're like, oh, that's the I-grade group over there. And you see them doing it you're like, oh, I still need a lot to, go, to get over there. And even... If I'm a big fish in a little pond at the moment, that's the thing. Like the world is a very big place. I went to Japan last year for the Kitamoto Foreign Leaders Kendo Seminar. The week after that, I was in Nagoya to practice Naginata. I also practiced Jukeno and Tankeno with Terada Sensei. Very good, good, very impressive person. Not only as a sensei, but as a person, is a really impressive person. I, I have only good feelings about Terada Sensei. So I went there to practice Kendo and Naginata. The Kendo was in the Kitamoto Gashku. It's always amazing. Everyone that has been there or have heard about Kitamoto. I don't really think I need, I need to talk about that because it's everyone knows it. It's incredible. You learn so much in such a short period of time. And you see the highest level of Kendo that there is. It's a really awesome experience. If you can, you should go for everyone that's listening to this. Then I went to, to do Naginata at Aichi, Budokan. And then you're, like, you're doing Naginata with uh, people that are teenagers. Like, of course, everyone's... Well, not like the only other male that was there were, were the parents. And one of the senpai, sensei at the dojo, is also a, a man. So you're getting, like, you're practicing with 12-year-old girls. And... Uh, yeah, of course, they're doing like Shikakioji also. Not only uh, everything that they do is just so clean and perfect, and it looks so soft and and smooth, and it's real naginata from someone that's a third your age. And you're like, yeah, we need to improve a lot still. So I, I will never feel like 
in that sense, in technical terms, I'll never feel like I'm like good enough. So I will always need to improve. Mm -hmm. So I will. That's that's pretty control. What I sometimes lacking in in terms of ego is that sometimes very easy easy to judge other people that are kind of in the same situation as you in different countries. And oh, that person is X great, but she's not that good or that something like that. And this is not a good attitude for someone that does budo. But where my my way of dealing with this is we're all human. We all have mistakes and failings in our life. As We need to realize them. And I'm trying at the moment to understand that every person has their own situation in life. It's difficult sometimes to go to practice or to even practice. There are health issues, physical and mental. There are work-related issues, there are family issues. There are several things that make people not commit themselves to the Buddha. Or sometimes they just don't want to commit to the Buddha. And that's okay. Every person has their own way of uh, approaching practice. And uh, I shouldn't be so judgmental. But I have to admit, sometimes I am. And uh, it's something that I'm trying to improve at the moment. So to be, under, to be more compassionate and to have more empathy with mm-hmm. other people. And it sounds like some of that came from this friend of yours, Geert. I, I don't know how to pronounce his name. Could you yeah. talk about, about him? <laughs> yeah, that's names. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I can talk about Geert. Yeah, I think this is a really important thing. And I think I, I feel and uh, Patricia... His wife also, I think, also feels like sometimes people are forgetting about Geert and what he meant for many people. So Geert, I said before, Chris is my sensei, my kind of sensei. But Geert is like the person. So I, I had two very big persons in my life as an example. One was my kickboxing coach, that's for sure. And Geert. Geert is someone that I met him in 2013 or 2012. I met him some years ago already. No, 2011. Yeah, it was 2011. No, 2011 I met Patricia. Sorry, Patricia. I tend to use different accents when I'm talking different languages. So I met Patricia and then I met Geert. I've been going to Belgium for quite some time for the Gashkus there. And I stayed at Patricia's place. And he was a boyfriend at that time. Almost at the end of his life, he became his husband. But yeah, so Geert was every, so every time I went to Belgium, I was with them. And Geert is like, and he was an amazing person. He was, he was nice. He was a funny person. He was like, he was an example of humility. He never thought that he was too good at least. <laughs> he, he always practiced really hard. He did loss for his own kendo. He was in the IBU for one year. That's something that I would like to do, but I'm already too old and I have too many commitments. I don't know if I will ever be able to do it. But essentially, he started really young. He was really talented, in my opinion, and in lots of other people's opinion, he was really talented, but also very hardworking. And that's the main thing. He was really hardworking. And although I was like just a stupid shot, not even shot than the first time I met him, so I did shodan there on the first gashko that I went there. Not even a shodan, and he always treated me with respect. And not only, we were friends, we became friends. And he was a really nice person. 
his skin was awesome we got along so well like he had a, a magnificent sense of humor that really went well with my own sense of humor which is also kind of dark and we had some very nice moments not only in the dojo but outside of the dojo even when coming to going to vacation or coming from vacations or coming to seminars here we spent lots of time and uh, he also knows Chris of course he's like from Ghent they are both from Ghent they were good friends from childhood and uh, yeah so what's I'm talking about Geert I, I noticed that I'm speaking in the, the present tense but as I also said Geert died about two years ago he died in 2018 and he was how old was he he was 30 years old he was younger than me when he died and he had so much left to do with his life and it was life interrupted too soon but he, he had everything that I wish I was at that time and that is, is still an example of the person that I wish to become he, he had a great job a great wife a great candle great friends he, he was just a model a role model for me and he still is I still when I practice, I still think about his kind of candle, the way that he did candle, and uh, the way that he led life. He led life to the fullest until the end, as far as I know. I was in Portugal, he was in Belgium. I didn't get to be with him for the last months. So he died of cancer, colon cancer. And uh, I was with him at the Mintagashko in Belgium. And that was about two weeks before he knew that he had cancer. And that was, he knew at the end of December, or I, he told me in January, I guess, of 2018. And uh, three months later, he died. So it was really a short period of time that he, the cancer took him away. He had, he had plans for lots of things. He was, as far as I know, people can tell more about it because I'm not, I know that he was going to be a captain of the Kennel team for Belgium, but, and he did really good at the Nakakura Cup that year. And he was at the Kennel, maybe his Kennel peak. I don't know if you would agree with that, but he was really at the highest point, maybe in his Kennel at that time. And in a, just a couple of months, he, he died and uh, essentially you cannot live your life thinking that you'll have enough time to do everything you really have to to when you do something so when you do something you really have to do it the best that you can and always on the percent of the time trying to do the best and that's it you can never assume that you're going to have enough time to do anything else so take your time and use it the best way possible. What and would you say would be the biggest change in how you live your life after finding out about his passing? Well, it, yeah. the biggest change is, well, I think that understanding, of, of course this is much more than intellectually understanding what happened and actually accepting I, I still find it hard to accept that Geert died, although it has been two years, more than two years. So I think it's, yeah, 
acceptance is difficult and uh, especially on such a hard case of reality like this it's really difficult to to accept it and move on or not move on because i think moving on is a passes the idea that we're forgetting people no we we have to keep in mind the examples of our past teachers and the teacher is not only someone that teaches you at the dojo the teacher is someone that teaches you by example and uh, and there are many ways to be a teacher, I, I, I believe. So he was never my teacher in the sense that he was a sensei, but he was my teacher in life as a role model. And uh, what, what changed, I, don't, I, I think I'm not strong enough. I don't think I have been able to change as much as I would like to have changed in this, in this time that has passed. I've been trying, like I said, I've been trying to do some things. One thing that I'm, that I actually think I've improved because of this is there's too many people in, in everyone has something like someone like that in in life that, especially nowadays, I think there's too many toxic people and toxic things in life, the news, everything is very toxic, and uh, quoting someone else. Why should I give my valuable time to people that don't care if I live or die? So for all the music fans out there, that was the Smiths. <laughs> so what difference does it make? I, I believe. So it's kind of that. So life is too short. And as a, okay, also as a teacher, sometimes you'll have students that are difficult students and that you'll need to handle their, not only negativity, against themselves but against other people at the dojo and you have to be able to handle that but there's also a point that you have a responsibility to make people better people than what they are and that also includes yourself especially if you're a sensei a teacher but sometimes you just have to some relationships are not meant to last we're always educated since childhood that friendships are forever and uh, things like that. But in real life, not all friendships are forever. Not all relationships are forever. And some, when something becomes so toxic that it affects your life, you should move on and finish it. Because there's no time to waste on negative stuff. It's just so poison in your heart and soul that you cannot do anything else besides feeling that anger and hatred and life is too good to be lost with anger and hatred that's what i believe so we should be able when uh, when there was a second world war and japan was bombed and uh, things were over the war was over for japan nakayama kudo mentioned that the war is now over we should not harbor resentment towards our former enemies we should move on with our lives even if it is dif- difficult. And uh, this is what I think also. Even we cannot waste time with this. And if something is not suited for us, or if the relationship is not suited for us, then we have to move on. And I mention this because it's also something that has happened along my life. It, it, it doesn't happen much, <laughs> thankfully. But sometimes you really need to move on. And when I see someone that has a perfect not, it's not perfect, of course, but when someone has a life that you really look up to it and then you see, oh, 
now it's over. What, what, what do you do with that? You learn something. And the something is don't waste time. Even in practice, even in technical terms, when you're doing practice, sometimes you'll see people, oh, I, I need to take a little rest or, and, or oh, I can, I can slack off a little. No, I think it was after that that my dojo, we have a, at the university, so I also teach at the university. Well, I also used to teach at university classes like computer science, you know, I mean like candle classes and negative classes. We have at the showman, we have a board that says Ishokenmei. And uh, of course, lots of people that speak, speak Japanese, I'm, I don't, my Japanese is not that good. There's the Ishokenmei that we use nowadays. And there's the old saying from the time of the Sengoku Jidai, I believe, or Muromachi period where Isho is one place and Kamei is your whole life at the same. But Isho is one place. So you give your whole life for one place. And of course, this for the samurai meant their Han and their Daimyo. But I think nowadays is also something that we should do. Your place is your, it depends on each person, it can be your family, it can be your work. I don't think work is the best place to put that emphasis, but that's each person should know best, I guess. But for me, when I think it's okay, may I think about giving my best. When I'm doing something, I try not to slack off. And if I feel like I'm slacking off, if I notice, if my brain goes into automatic, automatic mode and then notes, oh, this was not 100%, then I need to go back and do it 100%. We, we don't have time to waste. And that's mm-hmm. something that applies to your life outside the dojo, it applies to your life in the dojo. So I practice several Budo, as many people know. So Kendo, Naginata, I also started Jukeno and Tankendo uh, some time ago. And people always ask me, how do you find time to practice? Well, I'm not that good at making my own schedule, but I try to have a tight schedule. And the thing is not how long you practice, of course, in this practice time. But it's not only about how long, but how smart and how intense you practice. That's my secret, in a way, is that I have no talent. I know that I have no talent. So I focus on doing hard and smart work or trying to be smart. That's, I can, maybe I'm not that smart doing the hard work, but at least I try to do hard work. Mm-hmm. And the uh, secret for hard work is not doing it a thousand times. Like you see lots of things now on Facebook and whatever, a thousand suburi a day and all that. And it can be, it can be one way of doing it. And I also done, have done that. But there are really perfect suburi beats a thousand FS suburi every single day. So give your all, don't waste time. That's a great lesson and a great way to wrap up this, hopefully, first conversation of a couple more. I know there's a lot of things we haven't covered, but you shared so much, and I'm very appreciative of you talking about mental health and talking about the shortness of life. I, I think these lessons are super important, and, and it's something that is so prevalent in the martial arts, but so rarely spoken about, so rarely shared, only in secret places. So thank you so much. And there's a lot more we want to cover, but let's save that for another time. Yes. Yes, yeah, yeah, I got sidetracked a little. No, I no, just, it's great. 
yeah, I'll just say one last thing on the shortness of life. Bodo is lifelong. Bodo is lifelong. And up until uh, a couple of months ago, I thought, uh, yeah, I'm going to practice until I'm 100 years old and I'll die at the dojo practicing. Kind of extreme, I know, but that's the kind of feeling like you want to practice until the last possible moment. And the thing is, I have some hip issues at the moment, some issues with my hip. And I kind of never really, of course, you see like sensei with 70, 80 years old or more even, and they practice. And you see them and they like, they look like perfect. But I don't believe there are any people that are 70, 80 years old or more and that are 100% healthy. But they are still able to do it. Now I have some EP issues. I cannot run, at least for, I don't think I will ever be able to run as I used to run before, among other exercises. So now, I, so now that I have these issues, I also have to think about how to adjust my practice. Do I need to adjust my practice? What can I do and what I can't do? And that also means lifelong Budo. And that's the physical aspect. So I never had considered this in these ways, in a sense. But now that I'm facing it, I have to understand that my body will not last the rest of my life like it was. And I have to adjust it. But also related to what we were talking before, in normal life, your everyday life, your not just physical parts, your, your health will decay, your relationships will change. But you still have to move on and keep living your life. It's the the path is never ending. The Buddha path is never ending, and this applies to everything. And if your body decays, you still have to move on, and this will affect other parts of your life. But you you still you cannot stop living your life, and also that applies also to the rest. Your relationships will change. Your your everything will change. But you still have to keep on the path. I think that's it. Thank you. Thank you. That's a great way to wrap this up. Thank you so much. So uh, thank you. Have a nice sleep and rest. Yeah, no, I'm, I have to take my daughter to school now. So. Oh, OK, OK. Yeah. All right. <laughs> okay. I'll see you later. Thank see you. See you later. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hey, guys. I hope you enjoyed that episode, because we have a lot more exciting conversations to share as we explore the world of the traditional Japanese martial arts. The Inside Look podcast is available on most common podcasting platforms and on YouTube. Remember to subscribe to not miss out on new interviews as they are posted. We're always looking for feedback to improve, so please write us a review or drop us a line at podcast at tokushikai.ca or on Facebook and Instagram at tokushikai.canada. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>